podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast on Monday, the 17th of April. Hope you all had a pleasant weekend. I did not. I had to sit and dread the idea of Liverpool playing on a Monday night away to Leeds. But putting that to one side, we did have nine games in the Premier League over the weekend. So let's jump into them. And we will get started with the early kickoff. On Saturday, which saw Aston Villa beat Newcastle 3-0. Villa were unbelievably good. Unbelievably good. 3-0 didn't flatter them at all. If this had ended 4 or 5, Newcastle could have had no real complaints. Nick Pope made a couple of good saves. Ollie Watkins had a goal disallowed. Villa were rampant. Watkins' performance in this game was everything you want to see from him. From a centre forward of his skill set. That ability to drift into wide spaces and run in behind fullbacks, while also mixing it physically with centre backs, holding the ball up, bringing others into play. Jacob Ramsey opened the scoring on 11 minutes, set up by Watkins, great knockdown, lovely left footed finish by Ramsey. From there, Villa just pummeled Newcastle and probably should have gone in two or three at half time. It took until 64. Watkins gets his first goal. Really nice swivel and shot. Gave Nick Pope a little chance. On 83, Watkins makes it three and puts a scoreline that more closely resembled the game onto this. For Newcastle, it's it's disappointing. They were flat. They made some mistakes at the back that we haven't really seen them make too often this season. Uh, this. They still have the best defensive record in the league. But in recent weeks, they've just looked a little more shaky at the back. I think they're trying to be a bit more expansive going forward because obviously they had trouble scoring for quite a while. And then Eddie Howe turned it around and was getting them, you know, winning again. They were on a really good run. But it did create some fragility at the back. Not not major issues, just small issues, but... Credit to Newcastle. I mean, they're still having a great season. They're still in the top four. Tottenham losing this weekend also helps Newcastle because it means they don't give up their their cushion. They're three points ahead of Spurs with a game in hand. They're six points ahead of Villa. They also have a game in hand on them. But they are three points now behind United. And if a team in the top four is going to get caught, Newcastle look like the obvious choice. Um, they have Spurs next. That's a huge game for both teams. That one could potentially be decisive. After that, it's Everton away. That's a game they should win. Southampton at home. That's a game they should win. 
Then they host Arsenal in what's a massive game for both sides. Then it's Leeds. Then it's Leicester. Both winnable games. Then awaits Chelsea. And that one will be tough. There's also a game to get rescheduled in there. Uh, that's seven of their eight left. They've also got a game to get rescheduled. But it's not the worst run in for Newcastle. But the games at home to Spurs and Arsenal are massive. They've given themselves a great chance though. For Villa, I mean, what a turnaround under Unai Emery. I mean, this is, this is outstanding. In 13 games, Steven Gerrard had taken 12 points. In 18 games, Unai Emery has taken 38 points, which is over two points a game, which is absolutely top four form. Now, they may have left themselves a little bit too much to do, but I do fancy them to finish above Spurs now, given the form that Spurs are in. I do think Villa are going to claim one of these European spots. So they have seven games left. They're away to Brentford next. Brentford look a little bit like a team on the beach. Then it's Fulham. I think they're on the beach, despite a good performance at the weekend. I think Villa should win that. Away to United is really tough. United have been very good at home. Then Wolves. Depends on where Wolves are at that point. It's going to be tough at Molyneux, but if Wolves are safe or close to safe, it's a bit of an easier game than if Wolves are scrapping for points to avoid relegation. Then their last three is really tough. Home to Spurs, away to Liverpool, home to Brighton. All teams that could beat them. So they need to rack up as many points as they can in the next four, including that trip to Old Trafford, which if they could get a draw, it would be great. And then they've got to beat Spurs. If they're serious about top four, they've got to go to Anfield and get something and they'll have to get a result at home to Brighton. Brighton at that point might have nothing to play for. They might have secured a European spot or they might have fallen out of the European spots. But we'll have to wait and see. But I've been so impressed with Villa. And this, this really was an outstanding performance from start to finish. They coped well with the threat of Isak. I mean, Gordon and Murphy weren't in the game at all. They overran Villa in midfield with McGinn, Buendia and Ramsey all dropping in to swamp Newcastle. Every time Newcastle picked the ball up in midfield, every time Gamerish tried to get something going, not only did he have Luis and Dendonker in front of him, he had those other three coming back in behind him and almost putting him into a little box and forcing it to be very, very difficult for him to find what he wanted to do. Remember as well, that's Villa without their best player. Bubakar Kamara is the best player at that club, and he didn't play. So they should be very, very confident moving forward. They should be very excited about what's going on. There's still obvious areas to upgrade in this team. I mean, you can upgrade on McGinn. You can absolutely upgrade on uh, Moreno at left-back, on Young at right-back, and on Tyron Mings. But there's a lovely core of Martinez, Conza, Luis, Camara, Ramsey, Watkins, and potentially Buendia that they can build around. I think it's it's the brightest time for Aston Villa since Martin O'Neill was in charge. And they had that team with Milner and Barry and Stylian Petrov and 
Ashley Young was there and Stuart Downing was there. This is very early in the Unai Emery run. Like, the only player he's brought in so far is Moreno. He hasn't spent a whole lot of money. He hasn't been able to bring in the players that he will want to bring in. But if they have European football and they have Unai Emery and their Villa, they're a big club. Forget everything else. Forget what they've been through. Villa remain a massive club. There's the big three in England, United, Liverpool, Arsenal. After that, historically, I think Villa are the fourth biggest club. Now, City and Chelsea obviously have usurped them. But historically, in terms of fan base, in terms of history, I think you're looking at Villa. And I think their name does carry weight throughout Europe. They're a European Cup winner. Anyone who cares about the history of the game cares about Aston Villa. Unai Emery is a serial winner in Europe. If Villa get into the Europa League or Conference League next season, I think they'll stand a good chance of going a long way. Because they've got a manager who knows how to win those competitions. They've got some really good players. They've got very ambitious owners. They'll spend money. It's a great stadium that when it's locked in and engaged is a ferocious place to go. And if Villa have European football under the lights with that home partisan crowd, that'll be a tough place for anyone to go. But I do think it'll be an appealing place for players to want to sign for them. And they're looking at expanding Villa Park. Obviously, I think they've uh, they've begun that process with Ernest, and it's on the list of stadiums to be part of the the Euro bill, um, the Euro bid in twenty twenty eight with the increased capacity. I think they've gone up over ten thousand, which will be great. Aesthetically, it's one of my favourite stadiums. I love the red brick. I love the, the old school nature. I love the steps up. I love Villa Park. I, I think Villa are a fantastic club. I'm delighted to see them doing well and. Yeah, they've got they've got really ambitious owners who are getting their just rewards now because they've pumped money in. Dean Smith kept them in the league, but then it all drifted from there and the Gerrard appointment was a disaster. I do think one thing they need to do is think they need to move on from Christian Perslow. I don't think he's a particularly good administrator at the higher end of the game. I don't think he's a particularly good administrator at any end of the game, to be honest, but I'd like to see Villa just get him out the door, get someone in who knows they're doing get a good structure in place around Emery, back him, get the players in that he's looking for. That doesn't necessarily need to be the individuals he's looking for, but the profiles he's looking for. And Emery will do well. He will do well. He's a very, very good manager. I said it when they got him. I think he's one of the 15 best managers in Europe. I think that's probably been a little bit harsh to him to put him. I wouldn't put him at the bottom of that 15. He's probably 12, 13 maybe. Um, But his track record is so impressive. and. I know people say he failed at Arsenal. Did he, though? Or did Arsenal fail him? Were Arsenal set up to fail? Because I feel like they were. I feel like they were. I think he was done badly at Arsenal. He's obviously succeeded at Villarreal. He succeeded at uh, Sevilla. He was really good back in the day at Valencia. He was really good. 
the Spartak Moscow job didn't go well, but you know, I know he got sacked. Um, I know he got well. He didn't get sacked. He kind of walked from PSG, but I think they were going to push him regardless. But when he's at a club that's more in line with Villa's size, and I think Sevilla and Valencia, though not quite Villa's size, are are in that same bubble. He's done really well. Three Europa leagues at Sevilla. He did win a treble among five or six different trophies. He won a PSG. Got to Europa League final with Arsenal. A very average Arsenal team. Won the Europa League with Villarreal. I think he's going to bring success to Villa. Uh, we'll move on before I get too caught up. Uh, Southampton nil, Crystal Palace 2. Two goals from Eberichi Eze. The first after a poor mistake, I think, by Gavin Basunu. Palms the ball. It's a cross from AU. Basunu sort of palms it back into a dangerous area. And Eze finishes well. The second goal was brilliant. Receives the ball on the turn. Swivels, makes a bit of space and just lashes it into the bottom corner from 20-odd yards out. He's he's such a talent. He's such a talent. Ah, there's part of me that would like to see him play for a bigger club, but then there's part part of me that would like to see see Palace keep what they have and build from it. I think Elise, him, Dukure, Ahamada, Edward, Gwehi, Anderson, Mitchell. I'd love Zaha to stay, but I don't think he will. Like, they're a couple of players short of having a really good team. If they can get the right manager, I think they can make a bit of noise next season and maybe be top half. Uh, they currently sit 12th, but they're now nine points clear of the relegation zone uh, with the same number of games played. That's three games in a row. The Hodgson move has worked. Um, I do think Vieira would have kept them up, but the Hodgson move has, has definitely worked. Three wins in a row. You can't argue with it. Uh, Palace have Everton at home next. Then they go to Wolves. Then West Ham home. Then Spurs away. Bournemouth home, Fulham away, Palace home. Palace are staying up. They're going to be a Premier League club next season. In all likelihood, Roy will win another two or three games and get them in that, you know, 43 to 45 point kind of range, which is where he likes to be. Palace have no issues to worry about. Saints, though, it's, it's looking, it's looking unlikely that they'll survive. Uh, they're four points from safety. Now, they are fortunate that both Forrest and Everton look rancid and were awful at the weekend. So Saints could get their act together, potentially they could stay up. But this was this was disappointing. They didn't really come alive until they were behind. Um, Alvarez hit the post, then he flashed a volley over the bar. Sam Johnston made a great save from Balakotchup. The big problem for me when I watch Southampton is like the senior players just routinely let them down. I thought Bednarak had a stinker at the weekend. Ward Prowse was awful. He's just not involved in the game. Walcott, I mean, what are you doing? It's an empty shirt. Um, the, the the decision not to play with a striker at home really wound me up. Like Joe Aribo is not a striker. Alcaraz is not a striker. Walcott is not a striker. Suleimana is not a striker. Put a striker on the pitch. Get somebody on who knows how to work in the box. And I know you don't have great options at the moment. But 
you brought Unuachu in during the January window. You're bringing him off the bench. Let him start a run of games. Try Sekumara up front. He's not a natural striker, but he's a forward player at least. Aribo missed a good chance for them early on, and after that they looked absolutely aimless until they were behind. And that's a real worry. And if they go down, which now looks likely, they'll have nobody to blame, only themselves. The decision to sack Hasenhutl was understandable. Completely understandable. Bringing in Jones to replace him was self-sabotage is the nicest way to put it. And by the time you sacked him, you went looking for a new manager. I don't care what Jesse Marsh was asking for. He's a real football manager. I'm sure Sellers will be a good manager somewhere down the line, but right now he's not in any way capable of doing the job required to keep this team in the league. Get a couple of good results, new manager bump, likely because they were delighted that Jones had gone, and they've just looked lost ever since. And you're doing no favours to the likes of Bella Kotchup and Lavia and Suleimana and Alcarez and Basunu, who are superbly talented players who are going to have long, I think, quite glorious careers. And you're surrounding them with players that aren't good enough. Your tactical setup is questionable at best. And your in-game decision-making is awful. Southampton are in big trouble. And their run-in is difficult. Arsenal away on Friday. That's a loss. Bournemouth at home the following Thursday. Absolute must win. Can't afford anything other than a win. Then a trip to Newcastle. That'll be horrible. Then they go to Forest. That's not going to be easy because Forest are in the same boat as them. Then they get Fulham at home and they should win that one. But they finish by going to Brighton and then having a trip from Liverpool to the South Coast. That's not going to be fun. Not going to be fun at all. Saints are in major bother. Major, major bother here. And I don't really think they know how to get out of it. I certainly don't think this manager does. We'll move on. Everton 1, Fulham 3. Harrison Reed scores on 22 minutes. Harry Wilson hits an unbelievable shot that bounces off the post. Everton can't clear their lines. Lands at Harrison Reed's feet and he sweeps it home. Uh, Wilson, uh, sorry, Dwight McNeil equalised uh, but 15 minutes later. Really nice goal. Turn, picked the ball up, drove, lovely shot. Great goal. Great, great goal. But it's what all Everton had to enjoy on the day. Uh, Everton's defence is all over the place. Har- Harry Wilson made it 2 on 51. And then the third goal just kind of summed everything up. It's a, it's a, a hopeful punt into the box. James gets on the end of it. His first touch is poor, but it just bounces off a defender and lands back at his feet. And he finishes past Pickford. And I actually felt sorry for Pickford in this game because he he was getting no real help in front. In midfield, they looked soft without Onana. They just looked clueless, to be totally honest. They really did look clueless. Neil Mope missed a good chance, a 1v1. Bert Leno made a great save. But aside from that, like, 
Everton just didn't look like a team that had any real any real purpose about them. And that's got to be really worrying for Everton fans. They're 17th. They're level on points with Forest. They're only outside the relegation zone on goal difference because they've got a better defensive record than Forest. They've scored the same number of goals. Everton's run away to Palace. That's tough. Home to the Toon. That's tough. Away to Leicester, scrapping for their, their own lives. That's tough. Away to Brighton. That's tough. Man City at home. Away to Wolves. Will depend on where Wolves are at that point. But I mean, it's still going to be a tough game. And then last game of the season is Bournemouth. Now they may, they might be safe by then themselves, Bournemouth. But if not, then they're going to go there needing something. Really concerning. Uh, Fulham are comfortable in mid-table and don't need to worry about anything. They've got 42 points. Uh, that win absolutely confirms that they'll be in the league next year. So they don't need to, they don't need to concern themselves with what's going on at the bottom of the table. They're also three points ahead of Chelsea, which is, you know, a great achievement for them. Um, they, I still think they're on the beach. Like they played well in this game. They put in the effort, but it was very kind of straightforward for them. Um, we'll move on. Wolves to Brentford nil. Brentford looked like they were on the holidays. Uh, Diego Costa scored on 27 minutes. He miscontrolled the ball and then kind of tackled it into the net from about 12 yards, which was very Diego Costa. Uh, Huang Hee Chan doubled the lead on 69 minutes. Really good work from Matthias Nunes. Beat a couple of people in the right-hand channel. Huang finishes quite well. It's a, it's a decent goal. Uh, Brentford it just didn't look like the game meant a whole lot to them. Um, Brentford are going to be fine. They've got 43 points. They're safe for another year. That's back-to-back wins for Wolves. Seven points from the last three games. Lopetegui is moving them in the right direction. I think they're going to be fine. Um, Leicester away next will be tough because Leicester are in in, in trouble. Uh, then it's Palace at home. Brighton away. Villa at home. United away. Everton home. And Arsenal away. Now, that is a tough running. There's no doubt that's a real tough running. They probably will need five points. So, you know, a draw at Palace, a draw at Leicester, and beat Everton at home. <clears throat> There's your five points. That should be enough to keep them up, which would, you know, allow them, if they lost the other games, to Brighton, Villa, United, and Arsenal, would still allow them to survive. That's why that. Everton run is so hard because in all likelihood there's not going to be an easy game unless it's the last one if Bournemouth are safe. But I think Wolves will have enough to stay up. 34 points, six, sorry, seven ahead of Everton and Forest. They should have enough. I'm still using sort of 39, 40 points as the, the safety mark, even though in all likelihood, 36 points might well keep you up this season. It probably will keep you up this season. I'm still just going, kind of airing on the the side of added safety. Uh, moving on then. Um, Chelsea won Brighton 2, and that flatters Chelsea. Conor Gallagher put them one up 
on 13 minutes. A, a weak shot that deflected off Lewis Dunk, a wrong footed the goalkeeper and went in. And that was about all Chelsea had to offer in this game. They did pull one or two saves out of one save. I think one actual save out of Robert Sanchez um, because the other was actually a cross that he kind of palmed away. Um, Brighton battered them. Brighton had 26 shots. Chelsea had eight. Brighton had 10 on target. Chelsea had two. Bear in mind, Chelsea the home team here. Evan Ferguson started this game and looked like he was just going to murder everybody. Walloped the crossbar from distance. Had a great header saved by Kepa after a brilliant little interplay with Enciso. Matoma had a shot brilliantly saved by Kepa after a lovely little jinking run where he beat Chalaba, Enzo Fernandez, and Badi Ashile in quick succession. I think, I think he just lashed it because he couldn't quite believe he'd gotten that far. Normally Matoma places shots. And I think if he just placed it in the corner, he scores what would have been an incredible solo goal. The thing to note about Brighton here, not only did they go to Stamford Bridge and completely dominate Chelsea on their own patch, Veltman and Ferguson both had to go off within the first 35 minutes. They didn't make like-for-like changes. Danny Welbeck came on for Ferguson. That's like-for-like. But when Veltman went off, they brought on Inciso. Now, Veltman's a right-back and Inciso's a forward player. So what they did was they moved Pascal Grouse from midfield to right-back and Alexis McAllister from the 10 back into central midfield and then put Inciso in as the 10. And everybody just adapted. Gross had a had a really good game, kept Mudrick quiet. McAllister ran the game with Caicedo. The two of them were just phenomenally good. But for De Zerbi to react like that in-game with those type of substitutions, given the state of game as well at the different times, so, so impressive. Solly March had another good game. Stupinen was excellent. Lewis Dunk was excellent. Webster was really good. There was nobody on that Brighton team that wasn't at least an 8 out of 10. They were just excellent from start to finish. Absolutely dominated. Welbeck got them on level terms on 42 minutes with a good header. And then Enciso won it for them on 69 with an absolute rocket from about 25 yards out. Um, he'd caused so many problems for Chelsea with his industry and his, his ability on the ball. He had one moment where... He chased the lost cause, somehow came away with the ball because Reese James and Chalaba both had nightmares. <clears throat> Lashed his shot against the post. It bounced to Danny Welbeck, who should have scored an open goal from nine or ten yards, but, but couldn't finish. But every little involvement he had, picking the ball up, linking play, dropping off, winning free, winning free kicks, it was all very, very impressive. And I think Brighton have another absolute gem on their hands there. And the possibility of an Enciso-Ferguson partnership moving forward for them has got to be really exciting. Another desperate result for Chelsea. They're, they're just, they're horrible. They're absolutely horrible. They're 11th. They're in, on 39 points. I wouldn't be surprised if Palace overtake them at this point. Uh, they just look completely lost. Now they've got Brentford next in the week. 
Then it's Arsenal away. I thought that was going to be a tough game for Arsenal, but it's not. Arsenal wiped the floor with them. Then they play Bournemouth. Then they play Nottingham Forest. Bournemouth's away. Forest is at home. Then City away. They'll get murdered in that game. And then they finish uh, with Newcastle. They've also got a rescheduled game against Man United to fit in somewhere. Realistically, does anyone see them taking more than maybe seven points? You know, maybe maybe beat Brentford and beat Forest and maybe draw with Bournemouth and get stomped by United, Chelsea, City and the Toon. They're just awful. But what a story Brighton are this year. I mean, seventh in the league. Same number of games played as Liverpool and they're five points clear. Two games in hand on Villa while only being a point behind. Two games in hand on Spurs while only being four points behind. So they can overtake both of them. They've got a game in hand on the tune, but they are seven points behind. So it's going to be a big ask to get back and catch Newcastle for a top four finish. But They've been so impressive this season. Um, they've got schedule games now. Like obviously they've got Man City to be rescheduled. And I think Newcastle is the other one to be rescheduled. So they're both really difficult games. But they've got Forest away, Wolves home, United home, Everton home, Southampton home. They, they're all winnable. They've got to go to Villa Park and they've got to go to Arsenal. Um, which are both tough. And then obviously City and Newcastle away, they're both tough as well. But what a season. If they can get European football, that that is a bigger achievement than Newcastle getting top four. Because look at the budgets. Look at the size of the club. Look at the expectations. If Brighton get Europa League or even Conference League, that's a bigger achievement than the Toon. And the Toon getting top four would be a huge achievement. But Brighton getting Euro- European football would be incredible. Especially when you consider the director of football got poached, then their manager got poached. Those are hammer blows for other clubs. For Brighton, not a problem. Not a problem. Brighton took £80 million pounds off of Chelsea for Kukurea and then Potter. Probably another couple of million for the other people that Chelsea poached. They got Estupinen for about 20 million, got Deserby for free, pocketed 60 million, and got much better. Other clubs would crumble. They've just gone from strength to strength, and that, that team that they're building there could become something really, really good if they could keep it together. Now, the likelihood is, they lose one or both of McAllister and Caicedo. <clears throat> I think McAllister's the easier one to replace. I think Caicedo's quite a unique profile. But they've got Kasper Kozlowski to come in, Yari to come in. They've got uh, a Dingra on loan is tearing it up this season. Uh, they're a, They're going to be a real problem for a couple of years. Levi Colwell, that's the big one. Can they keep him? They probably need to sell McAllister to afford Colwell. Uh, And I think they'll look to upgrade right back and maybe the goalkeeper. But they're in great shape. They really are in great shape. 
and uh, they're a model club. Uh, Tottenham 2, Bournemouth 3. I, I don't know what to make of Spurs. They're just such a mess. Son put them one up on 14. They looked rampant. They were all over Bournemouth and probably should have been 2 or 3 nil up. And then they just have this defensive lapse where everybody switches off. Simple ball through the defence. Matthias Vigna runs onto it, finishes past Hugo Lloris in a 1v1. Then Dominic Solanke gets played in. 1v1, lifts it over the keeper. Easy finish, easy goal. Spurs continue to battle. Bournemouth are holding on, but Bournemouth look lethal on the counter. Spurs finally get back into it on 88 minutes. Arnett Danjuma, deflected shot from the edge of the area. 2-2. It's going to be five or six minutes out of time. You're thinking there's only one team winning this game and it'll be Spurs. Because that's going to be a hammer blow to Bournemouth. Not even a little bit. Spurs have an attack. Bournemouth take the ball off them. Head on up the pitch. Uatara gets one-on-one. Beats his man. Finishes past Larice. Great goal. Great win. Gary O'Neill. Look, I'm going to continue to say they're in my bottom three to go down until such a point as it's no longer feasible for them to go down. They're getting quite close to that point, it should be said, but I'm going to need them to hit 39 points before I say they're safe. Three wins out of four, having had a disastrous run, is is just the type of character and courage that you need in this league. Like, let's look at their season very briefly. They start off, they beat Villa under Gerrard, the Villa were crap. They get walloped by City, walloped by Arsenal, and absolutely embarrassed by Liverpool. So they sack Scotty Tuchel's. Gary O'Neill takes over as a caretaker, draw it home to Wolves. They beat Forrest away. They draw away to Newcastle. They draw it home to Brentford. They beat Leicester at home. And then they draw away to Fulham. Really good six-game run. Then they lose four on the trot. Then they play Everton. Beat them in the cup, then beat them in the uh, in the league. Go to the World Cup break, come back, lose four in a row, draw with Forest, lose to Brighton, another draw with Newcastle. Two draws with Newcastle this season. Really impressive. Now, it was in the runs where Newcastle couldn't beat anybody, but at the same time, Newcastle are a much better team than Bournemouth. Then they go to Wolves and they win. They get walloped by City. Then they give Arsenal the fright of their lives. Then they beat Liverpool. Then they get beaten by Bournemouth. Then they beat Fulham. Then they get beaten by Brighton. Then they beat Leicester and Spurs away from home in back-to-back games. It's four wins from six. It's five wins from nine. And at this stage of the season, that's the type of stuff that keeps you up. They've got West Ham at home next. That's a game they can, they can win. Then they've got Southampton away. That's a game they can win. Then they get Leeds at home. That's a game they can win. Then they get Chelsea at home. That's a game they can win. Then it's Palace away. They could go there and get something. United at home will be very tough. But United haven't travelled brilliantly this season. And then they go to Everton on the final day. In all likelihood, 
Bournemouth will be safe before the last day of the season. But I'm still going to pick them in my bottom three because I, I, I'm hoping I'm reverse jinxing them. They're a really nice club. They're a, they're a tiny club. They have no business in the Premier League in terms of the size. So it's a brilliant story to see them in the Premier League and doing well. And I think you've got to give huge credit here to the new ownership. Because in January, they went out and they got Uatara, they paid 20 million for him. Simonio, they paid 10.5 for him. They paid 24 million for Ilya Zabarni. They brought in Matthias Vigne on loan and they brought in Hamad Traore on loan. And I'm not 100% certain on Vigne, but they've got an option or an obligation to buy on Traore. Is it an obligation? I think it's an obligation to buy. It's an obligation to buy as long as they stay up. On Vigne, it's an option to buy for 15 million. I think they'd do well to take that option up. Because I think if they go into next season with a back three of Zerbani, Sinisi, and Lloyd Kelly with Vigne as a left wing back, I think that's really good. Oatara and Solanke as a front two is working well. Now, I know Oatara tends to play a bit wider, but when they get close together, I think they cannot connect really well. Traore is a 10 behind them. Lerma, Cook, Billing, add one in midfield, add a right wing back. All of a sudden, that's that's a Premier League team. Neto, to his credit, has been a huge difference maker for them this season. He came in, they looked destitute, he got in the team, they started to look decent. He was part of the bad run, but then he got injured and then they looked awful again. Um, so Neto has made a, a big a big Im- impact this year. I think he's a captain now as well when Lloyd Kelly doesn't play. So shows the, the influence and respect he's got among his peers. But like they play that back three at the weekend. If you swap Sinisi in for Stevens, Zerbani in for Metham, Tavernier is a wing back I, I kind of like. He's left-footed, so playing him on the right means he's always cutting in field. But I do kind of like that setup. Vigne, Lerma's had a really good season, quietly a really good season. Joe Rothwell's been so important since he got fit again. He was arguably the best midfielder in the championship last year for Blackburn. They got him on, on a free, and I kind of felt like I was the only one that was impressed by that move for them. They played Christie and Billing behind Solanke at the weekend. I think if that's Traore and Oatara, I think that's quite a step up. Billing's had a good season. He's had some big moments, scored some important goals. But I think the other two with their pace and creativity behind Solanke makes them a more threatening team. What I like about um, Gary O'Neill, though, is he seems quite flexible. And he seems to plan accordingly for who he's playing against. So, credit to them. Really, really impressive job to be seven games left in a strong position to stay in the division. Six points clear of the relegation zone. With the same number of games played as as those teams. Um, Spurs are just... just, I don't even know. I, I don't want to talk about Spurs. Um, I don't, I don't care about Spurs anymore. They, they just need to go away, come back next season with a real manager. I, I, the decision to sack Conte was just stupid. I understand he probably wanted to be sacked, but still, 
the guy was under contract, make him see out his contract, get your top four finish, and then make a change from a position of strength. Now, you probably missed top four. Harry Kane has a year left in his deal. He'd probably push his way out the door. And then you might as well sell Son, because at his age, he's not going to be all that keen on a rebuild. And it's going to be a rebuild if Kane goes. Simple as that. Um, Man City 3, Leicester 1. This game was over on 25 minutes and City played accordingly. John Stones put them one up on five minutes. Really nice left-footed half volley from the edge of the area. Great goal. <coughs> Haaland made it two on 13 minutes from the penalty spot. Then he made it three on 25 after good work by De Bruyne. After that, City just sort of took their foot off the pedal. Um, Brighton, or Brighton, Leicester got one back for me in actual on 75 minutes. Messy, messy defending from City. And City just seemed to have switched off to such an extent that from there, it was almost like they were helping Brighton, or helping Leicester. I don't know why I keep calling them Brighton. Leicester. Um, Madison missed a big chance. And Ian Acho missed another good chance. Hit the post from the chance. I just, it was almost like City turned up, went three and up, went right. That's it, job done, lads. Let's all go home. I'm sure if they needed to, they could have turned it on again. They're one of the very few teams anywhere in the world that can just have that on-off switch, where when they need to up the levels, they can, and when they can just cruise, they can. They look, they look fairly terrifying at the minute. When when everything's flowing and they're foot to the floor, they're scary. Um, things don't look good for Leicester. Four defeats in a row. Second from bottom. Two points from safety, but eight goals worse off than Everton, so three points from safety. Uh, their run-in is not the nicest. Now, the next few games are helpful to them. But they're also against teams that are fighting for their own lives in the Premier League. Wolves at home, Leeds away, Everton at home. They're going to win. need to win two of those three. Then they go to Fulham. It just depends on which Fulham you get. But then Liverpool home, Newcastle away. And last game of the season is West Ham, who are likely going to be scrapping for their own lives or just playing for their jobs and their futures because I don't know that just getting safety is going to keep Moyes. I think he's going to need to end the season on a high. Now, they've got the chance to win the Conference League, but, you know, that's separate. The the Premier League form needs to end well and going to Leicester and winning will be a good end for, for West Ham. Leicester are going to need to really up their game. That They just look so poor defensively. Harry Suter is not a Premier League player at this point, maybe in a year, but he needs time to adapt. Dean Smith pulled Sayonchu out of the deep freeze and threw him in um, because they're just desperate at this point. But it was all very comfortable for City. Um We'll come back to the Arsenal game because I want to link it to the City game. Uh, Nottingham Forest nil, United 2. Very comfortable for United. Other than Kaylor Navas, United 1-1, probably 5-0. Anthony scored on 32 minutes with a tap-in after a good save from Navas. Spilled to him about two yards out. And Diogo Delo wrapped it up on 76 minutes after a lovely through ball by Anthony. 
Uh, Bruno Fernandes uh, pulled three great saves out of the goalkeeper. United hit the post. Sancho missed a good chance. Martial missed a half-decent chance. United were just very comfortable in this game. Forrest just looked. Forrest look a little bit lost at the moment. Um, Forrest are level with Everton. They've got Liverpool away next. Then Brighton at home. Then Brentford. Then Southampton at home. Then Chelsea away. Then Arsenal. And then Crystal Palace. It's it's really hard to see how they get enough points. Because Everton, ha- Everton have a slightly easier run in. And Everton have a little bit more narrow about them. I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to say Forrest will stay up. For now, I'm still going to say Bournemouth are going down. But I, I really want Forrest to stay up. But that's a really tough run in. And they, they just look really poor at the minute. Like, you've got to go all the way back to the 5th of February to find their last league win. They beat Leeds at home. They got beaten by Fulham. They drew at City, which was a great result. And I thought maybe that'll be a bit of a springboard. Nope. Walloped by West Ham the following week. They drew at Everton. They lost to Spurs. They lost to Newcastle. They drew at Wolves. They lost to Leeds. They lost to Villa. And now lost to United. And and most of these results are, are understandable and acceptable. But you've got to be beating Everton and Wolves at home to stay up. That's kind of where they've messed themselves up. The league has been so weird that maybe they do string a couple of results together, but for now it looks tough. Um, last game then, we'll look at Arsenal. West Ham 2, Arsenal 2. Um, this is tough for Arsenal. They go two up within 10 minutes. Gabriel Jesus scores a tap-in after a really nice bit of play. Saka, Odegaard, Ben White all involved. Really nice goal. They're 2-0 up a couple of minutes later. Lovely cross from Martinelli. Nice finish by Odegaard at the back post. West Ham's defending for both of these goals, by the way, is absolutely comical. None of them have any idea where they're meant to be. There's no organisation. There's no leadership. Nobody's talking to each other. Nobody's tracking runners. Nobody's doing anything. They're just all standing about in ball watch or running around like chickens with their heads cut off. But then the game got interesting. 33 minutes in. Simple ball to Partey. 15 yards outside his own area. Not even 10. Simple ball defeat. His first touch is poor. Rice comes in to challenge. Partey tries to lift the ball over him. It seemed to hit Rice in the arm. But it was not a deliberate action. Rice drives into the box. Finds Paqueta. He gets fouled by Gabriel. It's a stonewall penalty. And Ben Rama steps up, sends the goalkeeper the wrong way. 2-1. But now you're thinking, well, Arsenal are just going to go down the far end and score again. This is going to end 3-1, 4-1. Arsenal are going to win this comfortably. But that goal really did seem to rock Arsenal. Now, they got a penalty early in the second half for handball by... Mikel Antonio. Saka stepped up and he drilled it wide. He hit it with a bit of curl, but he hit it quite hard and hit it wide. Normally, he's so precise with his penalties. It was unusual to see him hit the ball that hard and that high as well. 
And then a few minutes later, simple ball. Arsenal's defence doesn't step out. I've seen a lot of Arsenal fans blame Rob Holding for not getting out quick enough. Ben White also played Bowen onside. Bowen hits a a volley with, with a bit of venom. Hits it down and it catches, as it hits the ground, it catches a bit of speed. And flies past Ramsdale. He gets a hand on it. Could he do better? Yeah, he could do better. But it's not like it's a, a big error or anything like that. It's a, like it's got a bit of venom in it as it comes up off the surface. So I wouldn't hammer Ramsdale too much for that. West Ham also missed a couple of really big chances in this game. And Mikel Antonio had two great-headed opportunities and didn't take either of them. But Arsenal just looked really ragged then when it went, when it went 2-2. And it looked like they kind of run out of ideas. Now, there's no other way to look at that as a massive two points dropped. That's, that is a choke job. You're tuning up away to a bad team and you bottle it. That's, that's a choke job. They obviously gave away a two goal lead at Anfield, previous game. And now their eight point lead with City having a game in hand, which was really a five point lead, is now a four point lead with City having a game in hand. And they also have to play each other. So if City win that game, it's a one-point lead for Arsenal and City have a game in hand. And if we catch an eye at the league table, City have a plus seven advantage in the goal difference column. So City would only need to draw their game in hand to win the league or or win it and, and draw another game. It puts City in the in the driving seat for me right now because I expect them to beat Arsenal at the Etihad. Now, I know people have talked about City having a lot of games coming up, and that's true, they do. But their next league game is Arsenal. They play Bayern. That's a game they can rest people in. Then they play Sheffield United in the FA Cup semi-final. Again, that's a game they're not going to have to go full strength in. Pep won't care if they win the FA Cup or not. The other two are the focus. Then it's Arsenal. Now, Arsenal play Southampton in the interim. So when that game happens, Arsenal will likely be seven points clear and City will have two games in hand. So let's say that's the case. I think City beat Arsenal. I think Arsenal beat Chelsea. I think Arsenal dropped points at Newcastle. I think Arsenal dropped points at home to Brighton. I'm going to say a Newcastle win and a Brighton draw. There's four points for Arsenal. Seven, including Southampton. They'll beat Forest, they'll beat Wolves. That's 13 points. I have Arsenal taking. Is it 13 points? 3, 6, 9, 12. 13 points I have Arsenal taking from their last seven games. That gets them to 87. If we look at City's upcoming games, I think they beat Arsenal, so there's three. I think they draw away to Brighton. There's four. They'll beat Fulham. They'll beat West Ham. They'll beat Leeds. They'll beat City. 
Oh, they'll beat Everton, rather. They'll beat Chelsea. And they'll beat Brentford on the last day of the season, is my bet. That is... Three, six, nine, twelve, fifteen, eighteen, twenty-one, twenty-two points. Twenty-two points gets them to ninety-two points and would have them win the league by five points. Which means I'm still giving them room to drop points somewhere. They could draw with Brentford on the last day of the season because it could well be over by then. I think City are going to win the league. I've said it all along. I see no reason to change. I'm going to stick with that. Arsenal have done really well. Really, really well. But it's one thing winning in October, November, February, March. It's another thing in April and May. And this City team are like zombies. And they know how to win in April and May. It's what they do. And they're relentless. And it's a horrible, horrible feeling when you've got a bit of a lead and they're just bearing down on you. And you win a game, you get a bit of breathing room, and then they win a game. It is a horrible feeling. Liverpool have gone head-to-head with them twice and ended up on the losing side both times by a point. A lot of people will say, oh, it's the Pep and Klopp here. There's been two title races between Liverpool and City. City have won both of them. The year Liverpool won the title, there was no title race. The title was over by... Liverpool fans were singing, we're going to win the league in December. The title was over by February. There was no title race in 2021. Liverpool didn't turn up. City won it at a canter. 17-18, Liverpool weren't title contenders. City won the title at a canter, 18 points clear of United in second. The two title races between Liverpool and City were 18-19 and 21-22, and City won both of them. Now, Liverpool won the European Cup in 18-19. They should have won the European Cup last year. They ended up just winning the two domestic cups. So they they did have... Good seasons themselves, even despite losing the league title by a point both times. But City have proven that when it comes to the crunch, they have the minerals to do it. Arsenal are showing that perhaps they don't. They're very inexperienced. They're a, the word soft has been used, and they are a little bit soft. But And I know people say, oh, they've got the best away record in the league. That's true. That's true. They haven't been to the Etihad. They haven't been to St. James's Park yet. Let's just wait and see how they do up there. It's easy to do when you're out in front. When you're able to play practically the same 11 every week. You've got about 14 key players that you're using every week. And you might get one or two injuries, as they did with Jesus and Zinchenko. But everybody else has largely stayed fit. They haven't had to change things. They haven't had to deal with the Champions League. I know they had Europa League, but it's not the same thing. They could rest players frequently throughout that. But now when it comes to the crunch, things get more difficult. It's just how it is in this league. And if we take a look at Arsenal, would you back them 
to see this out because for me, I wouldn't. I think we've got question marks over the mentality of Ramsdale, who gets very upset, visibly upset about things, tends to lose his temper, tends to blame others. We've got questions about the mentality of Ben White, a guy who left the World Cup party to come home because he wasn't going to play. Doesn't doesn't seem like someone you'd want in the trenches. Saliba's got this back injury, who knows, but he's very young, has no experience of this. Gabriel has moments where his brain switches off and his body does silly things. Sinchenko's been through it. And Kieran Tierney north of the border won a bunch of titles. So no issues at left back, but you'd ask questions about the other three. And then if they're not there, Rob Holding is playing. And he's just not of the required level. In midfield, you wouldn't have too many questions about Thomas Partey's mindset as a footballer. As a man, you'd have major questions about his mindset and his behaviours and his mentality, but we'll we'll leave that for now. Granit Xhaka has a, a history of brain farts and letting his team down. And it was him at Anfield that started the whole thing. So, you know, he's a question mark. I think Odegaard is very mentally tough. I think he's got a great mindset. I think he's a I think he's shown himself to be an actual proper leader this year. And I wouldn't have any doubts about him. But he is young and he is exper- inexperienced. Saka, Martinelli, again, I think they've got great mindsets. I think when, what we saw with Saka bouncing back from the penalty miss in the Euros, the way he's responded from that, proves the mindset. But again, they're both really, really young. And Gabriel Jesus, who's obviously been through it at City, and has proven himself to be a very, very good player. The only thing I'd say about Jesus and Zinchenko is neither of them were every game starters at City. When Jesus was, it was as a winger, not as a nine. And he's not had the pressure of carrying a goal-scoring burden. Now, Arsenal thus far haven't needed it because Odegaard's popped up with a bunch of goals and Saka's popped up with a bunch of goals. And Martinelli's popped up with goals and obviously Trossard's come in and added goals. But if it comes to the crunch where last 10 minutes against Wolves, last day of the season, Arsenal need a goal to win the league, will Jesus step up? Because I know Haaland will if roles are reversed. I know Haaland will. Jesus I don't know about yet. I think he's done really well at Arsenal. I think he's he's come on leaps and bounds as a as an all round player in the last sort of eighteen months. Um, he's proven good value for money for Arsenal for sure. But when push comes to shove, will he be the one that can step up? Now they might not need him to. They might not need him to, because someone else might do it. But you you do want to look at your number nine in certain situations and say, can you get me a goal? If I am desperate and I'm losing 1-0 and I need a point for the title and I run out of ideas and they've got a deep block and all I can do is pump a couple of crosses in or try and slip a ball into into a gap in the defence, are you the one with one chance that's going to win me, get me a goal and get me the point I need? I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to take a break. When we come back... We will do the gossip, and that'll be it for today. Nothing else going on. See you in a sec. 
The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Right, welcome back. So, gossip time. I'm not going to do anything else. Just going to do the gossip because we went long on going over the games at the weekend. We'll just do the gossip and be done. Chelsea are prepared to make Gavi one of the top orders in the top earners in the Premier League in order to sign the 18-year-old. I'd imagine most clubs are preparing big, big offers for him if there's a chance you can get him out of uh, Barcelona. He's obviously got the weird contract extension thing. We'll wait and see. Uh, the Blues are confident they can win the race for Victor Osman, even without Champions League football next season. Let me assure you, you can't. Liverpool have made Alexis McAllister the top midfield target this summer. I'd imagine he's on the list. I don't think he's the top midfield target. Crystal Palace and Ivory Coast Ford Wolf Zaha is set to reject a move to Saudi Arabia. That's been known for ages. He has already rejected said bid. Harry Kane will wait to reassess a new contract at Tottenham once the club have appointed a new manager. That's fair. I think that is fair. But it puts pressure on the club, the right kind of pressure, to go and get the right type of manager. Manchester City and Liverpool are eyeing Levi Colwell, Chelsea defender currently alone at Brighton. He'd be perfect for Liverpool. He's exactly what Liverpool need to play as a left-back 
who can flex into a back three and allow Trent to move into midfield. And in the long term, he's the Van Dijk successor. Uh, in addition to Caldwell, Liverpool are also interested in Mason Mount, which everybody knows, and Conor Gallagher, which I don't believe. I don't believe the Gallagher news because I know where it came from originally. Um, now, I know David Lynch has said it, but he's also said Liverpool need to bolster um, their homegrown numbers, which isn't true. It just isn't true. Liverpool do not need to bolster the homegrown numbers. It's just not true. Uh, Gallagher is not nearly good enough for Liverpool. Mount, if Chelsea are going to hold on to that price tag, that's just far too high. 70 million, he's not worth that with one year left in his deal. Um, the original source of the Gallagher news was Football London, which is coming directly out of Chelsea to try and, I think, bring interest in the player. Chelsea are expected to make a final push to convince Mason Mount to sign a new contract. My guess is he will. If I had to bet, I think I'd bet he will sign a new deal. But I think it could be a short-term deal. Like an, a two-year extension or something like that, and then see how we fit then. Um, the Blues have held talks with Ruben Amram as the club's search for a new permanent manager continues. If I was him, I would run so far from that job because he's building a career and that could be an absolutely disastrous move for him. Man City are among a number of clubs monitoring Portsmouth's 16-year-old wing-back Kobe Mota, by all accounts, superbly talented player. Barcelona are close to agreeing a deal with Ilke Gundogan. That's been rumbling for a while. I, I expect it probably is something that will happen. It's a move that makes sense for him if he wants to go and enjoy his latter years. I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense for Barcelona because I think they should be looking to get younger and not be paying older players huge wages. Chelsea could sell as many as nine first-team players in order to balance their finances with Christian Pulisic among those who leave. The problem is it's one thing saying, well, Pulisic and Lukaku and this player and that player. There has to be markets for them. There has to be markets for them. And the market for Pulisic, given his injury problems, the inconsistencies, I don't think it's going to be huge. Because remember, it's not just what clubs want him, it's what clubs can afford him. And there's not a whole lot of money floating around in, in Italy or in Germany or in Spain. Like, you're looking for a Premier League buyer. There's not a whole lot of Premier League clubs, I don't think, that are going to offer big money for Christian Pulisic. As talented as he is, the injuries and the inconsistency consistencies are going to be a concern. Liverpool are among a number of clubs tracking Leon winger Bradley Barcola. He does look a player. He really does look a player. From what I've seen of him this season, I wouldn't be against Liverpool bringing him in. Now, he is another right-footed left winger, but he can also play right across the front line. And I think if you played him on the right, you could simplify his game a little bit. I think he'd have a I think he'd be a cracker of a player, but we'll wait and see. Wait and see how that one pans out. Roma are interested in Roberto Firmino. That one could make a lot of sense. Roma are also interested in James Justin, uh, alone with an option to buy for €20 million. James Justin is out with a torn Achilles. He's just back from a torn ACL. You would have to be out of your mind to do anything other than a loan with an option to buy. And I think 20 million is a little bit high for the injuries that he's had. 
cracking player, though. Fulham will set a £60 million asking price for Joe Polina, who's a target for Manchester United. I don't believe he's a target for United because they've got Casemiro. You're not going to play the two of them together, surely. Surely you're not going to play the two of them together. Uh, Manchester City and Manchester United are both interested in signing Inter Milan and Italy centre-back Alessandro Bastoni. Um, he's He's outstanding, but I don't believe the source of it. And well, United have been telling us all year that Lissandro Martinez is the best centre-back in the world. So how would that work? Because they're both left-footed, left-side centre-backs. City, if Laporte leaves, it would make a lot of sense. The agent of Ilke Gundigan says the German midfielder has no agreement with another club amid links to Barcelona. Right, that was Saturday's gossip. We'll do Sundays. Uh, Man City are in pole position to sign Jude Bellingham but want assistance that he wants to work with Pep Guardiola. Well, they're not in pole position then at all, are they? Brighton value Alexis McAllister at 60 to 70 million, but hope they could get more with Liverpool, Chelsea and Man United Keane. I think the best move for him is Man City. If Gundogan leaves, he is the perfect replacement. Aurelian Chouameni is struggling for... First team football at Real Madrid, but they will not listen to offers. I bet they would. I think if you went to them and said, we'll give you a hundred million and add-ons going to about, sorry, we'll give you 80 million pounds and about another 15 to 20 in add-ons. I think Real would take it because that would go a long way towards funding their move for Bellingham, who they're desperate for. Anything to do with them not getting Bellingham is just down to the finances. If you gave them the money for, for Chiumeni, then it wouldn't be an issue for them to get Bellingham. Uh, Barcelona mid manager Xavi does not think Gavi would be happy at a different club. Well, I mean, he's obviously going to say that. Barcelona and Inter Milan have discussed a swap deal with Frank Kessie going to Inter and Marcelo Brozovic going the other way. That's a move that would make sense. Brozovic replacing Busquets would make some sense. Chelsea have no intention of selling Levi Colwell. Uh, he will be part of their First team set up at Chel- uh, set up next year. It's all well and good saying that, but they need to sell players. It's as simple as that. And he is one that will definitely bring in a large sum. And it's also, does he want to go back to Chelsea and be part of the first team setup where he's potentially sat behind Badia Shile? I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that to heart, that, that story. Uh, Tottenham have opened talks with Eric Dyer. I mean, that's just a dreadful, dreadful decision if that's true. He needs to go. He has been awful this season. He needs to go. Jurgen Klopp will allow Joel Matip to leave this summer. I think it's time. It was probably time two years ago. Uh, but unfortunately, it is Wayne Vesey. Uh, who's written this story, and he is, as we know, an absolute spoofer. So you wouldn't take too much of what he says very seriously. Uh, Austrian midfielder Marcel Sabitzer's chance of a permanent move to Manchester United depend on Bayern Munich dropping their asking price. Okay. Uh, Liverpool have stepped up their interest in Ryan Gravenberch. By all accounts, they've met with his agent and spoken to his father, and we'll see what happens there. He needs to get his act together, though, because he's been poor for two years, and it's largely attitude-related stuff. 
he just doesn't look like he tries nearly as hard as he did when he was 16, 17, 18. So we'll see. Loads of talent, bet on the talent, but, you know, it's a gamble. Um, Newcastle, Newcastle will not listen to offers for, sorry, will not offer Alan St. Maximum a new contract and will listen to offers. That's strange. Uh, RB Leipzig are interested in Fowler and Balligan. Yeah, I could see that. Patrick Vieira is top of Nottingham Forest shortlist if they sack, sack Steve Cooper. Um, no, he's not. There is no shortlift. And Harry Pratt, sport reporter for the Daily Star, uh, tagging this as an exclusive is laughable because over a week ago, the mail wrote this exact same story and the club came out and denied it. So Harry, Stop living up to your surname. Do your job. Write real stories, real journalism. Get some actual sources, not what you see on Twitter. Simple as that, son. Uh, then we move to Mondays. Chelsea have met with Julian Nagelsmann as they continue their search for a new boss. Uh, Luis Enrique was disappointed not to be appointed Chelsea's manager prior to the quarterfinal against Real Madrid, but is emerging as a favourite for the role because he could help in signing Gavi. I think that might be um, 2 plus 2 equals 5. Arsenal are targeting a move for Dusan Vlahovic, with Dominic Calvert-Lewin a backup option if they fail to land the Serbian. So they bought Gabriel Jesus, and now they want to sign a striker to replace him? That would be strange. That would be very strange, because Arteta's not playing two up front. Um, Vlahovic is very good. Calvaloon is good. They're totally different players. So what type of forward player do you want? Now, Football Insider sources have revealed, so, you know, stuff they saw on Twitter, that Mikel Arteta is pushing Arsenal to sign a striker completely different to his current options. That's all well and good, but, you know... You don't really have 70 million to bundle about for a backup striker. Uh, your accounts tell a rather harrowing tale. And I think Arsenal fans expecting mass spending if they get Champions League are going to be in for disappointment. I think they're going to be in for a big disappointment. I think they'll spend some money, but I don't think it's going to be a big summer. Uh, Jude Bellingham would rather stay at Borussia Dortmund and reassess his future in 2024 then make a move that is not right from this summer. I think that's wise for Bellingham. Former Liverpool striker Robbie Fowler believes the Reds are right not to spend the majority of their budget on Bellingham as they look to overhaul the team. That's absolutely true. Uh, Fowler and Balligan, RB Leipzig and AC Milan, uh, Victor Osterman to Manchester United. It, it, these are just things that people are making up again because they're bored and need to kill, fill, uh, fill column inches. Tony Cruz is set to continue at Real Madrid for the season with the 33-year-old set to accept a contract extension. That makes sense for all parties. Besiktas want to re-sign Wout Weghorst, but Manchester United unlikely to turn his loan move from Burnley into a permanent switch. Nice little bit of cash coming in for Burnley, though, either way, which will help with them having to buy a few players to you know adapt to the Premier League. And finally... Pep Guardiola is pushing to keep Ilke Gundogan and Bernardo Silva at the club, despite both players being linked with moves away this summer. That is all I have today, folks. Thank you, as always. 
If the sound or anything was a bit ropey, I do apologize, but I don't have Guy this week. Uh, I'm on my own, so um, you just have to take what you get, unfortunately, because I'm not very good at any of this recording stuff. But uh, hopefully this has been okay. Uh, I will be back tomorrow. I'm not here Wednesday of this week. I have an appointment uh, that I cannot avoid. Um, But tomorrow, Thursday, Friday, as normal. Uh, And then next week should be all normal. Again, there's no guy, so it could be a little bit clanky, but we'll do our best. Take care of yourselves. Have a good night. And uh, Liverpool, please don't let me down tonight. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.